The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Today I'd like to speak about the Eightfold Path. This is one of the fundamental teachings in the Buddhist tradition. And those of you that are studying the Middle Link Discourses, could I see a show of hands of how many people are reading the Middle Link Discourses or have it as at least a coffee table ornament? (laughs) Oh, good, more hands went up. Well, those of you that have it, I in, invite you to crack it open um, after this talk and read Sutta number 117 and number 141. 117 and 141. These are two wonderful discourses on uh, the Eightfold Path. And I think it's important sometimes to look directly at the suttas yourself because you might have a different interpretation than I have. And it helps to understand and to see, well, what did the Buddha teach about this teaching that we say is the most fundamental practice offered in the Buddhist tradition? There was a time when the Buddha was asked, why have some people reached Nibbana and others not? Oh, by the way, this is Sutta number 107 for those of you that are going to actually go home and look. So the Buddha was asked, why have some reached Nibbana and others not? And he basically gives a story and he says, well, there is this road and it goes from here to Rajgir. One who follows that road will actually reach the destination. It's not enough to just ask somebody for directions to say, oh, how is the way? How do we go? to this other village, to this other city, to this destination. We actually have to follow the track ourselves. We actually have to walk the path. So this is the path that the Buddha taught to the realization of deep and profound and ultimate peace. And this is the Eightfold Path. And the eight steps on this Eightfold Path include the first, which is called most often right view or right understanding are the two common translations of the Pali term samaditi. The second step is right intention or right thought, samasankapa. The third is right speech, samavacha. The fourth is right action, samakamanta. The fifth is right livelihood, samaajiva. The sixth is right effort, samavayama. And the seventh is right mindfulness, samasati. And the eighth is right concentration, samasamadhi. Sama is usually translated as right. Sometimes we see it translated as wise. And that's more of, it's not so much an accurate translation. It's more an effort to uh, get away from the pejorative terms of right and wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. Um, It. It can also be translated as the fulfillment of or the coming together of is more of a literal translation of what Sama means. It describes a collectedness in contrast to wrong, Nietzsche, which does not imply evil, but it describes the things that make one stray from the path, the things that do not lead to enlightenment. 
The Eightfold Path is called an ennobling path. It's the noble path as the fourth step of the fourth of, uh, is of the four noble truths. It's not only the way, the methods, the way that we realize Nibbana, that we realize enlightenment or deep peace, but it describes a nobility of the path that one cultivates, a quality of uprightness, an integration of mind, of attitude and intention, and of our actions. And it describes basically this integrated and collective way of living, which is described with this term, Sama. The entire path is built upon right view, the realization of what is right understanding. And it's described as the, as the, the path together is described as the, the fulfillment of right Samadhi, right concentration. And I think it's interesting just to consider some questions. Like, what do we do once we have an enlightenment experience? A profound understanding. A realization, or in some way get the truths of that craving causes suffering and this craving can be released. It can, be, it can cease. The cause of suffering can cease. When we get understand the, and realize the third noble truth. The Buddha didn't say, okay, now you've, you've got it. So go on holiday, hang out, relax, don't worry about anything. You don't have to bother with your daily practice. There's nowhere that he says this. Instead, we have the noble eightfold path that we practice and continue to cultivate as an expression of, as well as a way to attain realization. We don't wither away and die when we realize and have a realization of deep peace as the third noble truth. We, we don't just have glimpses of insight or an insight into not-self and then just relax and do nothing. Right view, right understanding is a realization of the truth of things. But in many ways, it's really the beginning of the path. And it's the beginning of the understanding and the development of every step along the path. Because this right view is integrated into the development of every aspect of the Eightfold Path and into this collected and cohesive and noble way of living. Said another way, before realization of the path, it can be just called an eightfold path. But after realization, after this realization of the third noble truth, is when it can accurately be called a noble eightfold path. And there are some discourses that make this distinction between practicing the path, the eightfold path, and then practicing the noble eightfold path. And the distinction isn't anything about the steps. It's whether we're practicing it before we've realized the cessation of the causes of suffering or after we've realized the cessation of the causes of suffering. So this Noble Eightfold Path can be considered both as a 
training in the sense of it's a relative mundane practice. And it can also be understood as an expression of our action beyond training, of an expression of the action of a realized mind. Sometimes this eightfold path is described one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Like in Sutta 141 in the Middle Lake Discourses, it's very linear and it's nice and easy. If you want to memorize it, that's the Sutta to look at because it's very organized, it's very easy to understand, and it's very linear. But other times it's described in more of a spiraling and integrated and interactive fashion, such as in Sutta number 117 in the Middle Lake Discourses. In this discourse, it's each factor of the path is described with the simultaneous intertwining of all of the other factors, where right effort, right view, and right mindfulness are defined as, as being a basis and integrated into each step of the path, and the whole step, the whole path continues to come together in this continuously integrated understanding. It literally says, and these three states run and circle around each other in relationship to every step of the path. And then the entire path becomes the very definition of the last step, which is called the uh, right samadhi or right concentration, sama samadhi, which describes the fulfillment of the path or the fulfillment of concentration as the fulfillment of the path. So it's interesting to just see how all of these factors begin to intertwine and support each other. We never just practice a one-fold path or a two-fold path or a three-fold path or just sort of pick our favorites. It's impossible to practice a noble eight-fold path with only a piece of it. it. It falls apart as a path that way. But I want to look at each of them in sequence because it's easier to understand as an overview. So the first right view or right understanding, samaditi, and I'd like to just give a brief definition from um, the Middle Link Discourses. Right view comes first. And how does right view come first? One understands wrong view as wrong view and right view as right view. This is one's right view. <laughs> You understand it, right? <laughs> I love that definition. It's very straightforward. Usually has students scratch their head and think, oh, I hope it explains a little bit more as we read on in the suttas. <laughs> but right view comes first. How do we view the world? What is intrinsic to our vision, our attitude, our way of apprehending phenomena? Right view specifically considers how do we conceive of how, do our, how our actions create consequences. Do we have right view in relationship to cause and effect? Does self take a primary place in our perception of the world? Does our world revolve around this delusion of this is mine? This is me. This is who I am. All this is happening to me. If we take ourselves to be the center of the universe and there's a strong sense of self-interest, then the mind is clouded by delusion and we will not be perceiving things with right view. But basically, 
right view boils down to understanding the causes and the end of suffering and understanding the Four Noble Truths. And what, friends, is right view? Knowledge of suffering, knowledge of the origin of suffering, knowledge of the cessation of suffering, and knowledge of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is called right view. And this is probably the most common definition of right view. There are many discourses that address right view. In my meditation group, I asked one Tuesday night last year, um, did anybody have any topics that they wanted me to address as I was contemplating what I should talk about (laughs) in the coming weeks? And somebody said right view. And I realized, well, actually... I hadn't really given very many talks on right view. It it had come up in Eightfold Path talks, but, you know, I hadn't really given a talk called right view. And when I develop a talk, I like to look at the suttas and see the different ways that the Buddha talked about it. And usually there's a few different ways. Well, right view, there are a lot of different ways. So this student didn't get his talk right away because... I started to develop the talks, and then I found suttas, and I realized that before I knew it, I had a six-part series on right view, each based on a very, very different definition or approach to what right view was. So there really is are a number. It's so fundamental, and how our attitude comes into the path is so important that as the Buddha spoke with different people, I think he really angled the teachings to be what's most effective for the people he was he was speaking to. But what we saw see most frequently, if we look at all of the discourses where the Buddha talked about right view, is what's repeated again and again most frequently is this definition that right view is the full is the understanding of the four noble truths. So the second is right intention or right thought, samasankapa. Our attitude, our view, our understanding, our perspective, these mold our intentions and then our intentions affect our actions. What, friends, is right intention, the Buddha asks? The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, the intention of non-cruelty, this is called right intention. Basically, it's a clarity of thought. What leads to happiness and what leads to harm? What is going to develop the qualities that will help us realize deep and profound peace? And what is only going to lead us towards agitation or greater delusion and confusion in our lives? In the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha says, Monks, a wise person, one of great wisdom, does not intend harm to self, intend harm to others, or intend harm to both self and others. Thinking in this way, such a one intends benefit for self, benefit for others, benefit for both, benefit for the whole world. Thus is one wise and of great wisdom. The intention is not always obvious in our actions. Sometimes the very same external action can be motivated by different intentions. So we really have to look and reflect for ourselves. What is our intention? Because we don't necessarily see it displayed 
in somebody's actions. For instance, a parent might spank a child out of a very good motivation in terms of discipline. But that same action, if it was stronger, <laughs> could be um, could be abusive or it could be a, a power, a kind of a power trip or an, an, an act of abuse. So different actions can have very, very different motives and they will have very different effects. Someone may give a gift out of generosity and have a fullness of that generosity. Somebody else might give something in order to avoid somebody else getting it. And sometimes we read these things in the newspaper. There was one very uh, story that came out, I don't remember, a year or two ago of, I forgot the woman's name, a very wealthy woman who gave something like $12 million to her dog, but didn't give anything to two grandchildren and gave a lot less than she gave to the dog to all all the other relatives. And so, you know, there's some speculation. Is that really generosity to canines? Or is there a little bit of spite involved in it and just not wanting somebody else to have it? So we don't know. Only she would know. It could be the most beautiful generosity towards beings who are dogs, uh, or at least that particular dog, although I really don't know how he spent $12 million. (laughs) Our intentions and our attitudes, they affect our experience. And that's the essence of this step of the right of, of the um, of the right intention. After right intention comes right speech. No matter the words that we speak, the intention that we speak them with influences the communication. So these are very linked: the intention and the speech. And we all know this. Social intelligence studies show that people respond more to the way something is communicated than the content of what is communicated. And I read a story uh, or a study where employees were given negative performance evaluations in two different modes. Those that were told in a friendly, upbeat manner left with a very positive feeling. And those that were told in a straightforward or abrupt manner left with a very negative feeling, even though both were receiving negative performance evaluations. The intention, attitude, or the emotional underpinnings influence what we say, how we speak, and how that speech is received and understood, what the results are and what the action is that comes out of it. Shanti Deva, a great Indian practitioner, I forgot what century, a long time ago, said, whenever I wish to move or to speak, first I shall examine my state of mind and firmly act in a suitable way. Whenever my mind becomes attached or angry, I shall not react, nor shall I speak. I shall remain mum and unmoved like a tree. Sometimes we just need to stop and actually just stop ourselves from speaking or acting until we sense that there's a clarity and a purity of the intentions, that it's actually that intention that we want to bring into a stronger form, such as speech or action. 
Right speech can be summarized as speaking what's truthful and what's useful. But the list that's most often given in the in relationship to the Eightfold Path is, and what is wrong speech? False speech, malicious speech, harsh speech, and gossip. This is wrong speech. And what is right speech? It's the abstaining from harsh speech. False speech, malicious speech, harsh speech, and gossip. Now, interestingly, in the um, in the discourse number one seventeen in the middle length discourses, they describe for each of the path factors one aspect of right right in this case right speech, which is mundane, which is basically just the opposite, not doing wrong speech. But then they also say that there is super mundane right speech, and it's defined differently. So this is the difference between somebody who's struggling along this path and is trying to trying trying really hard. It's right speech. It's really good. It's right speech. Is to abstain from those, but have has but this person has not yet realized the cessation of suffering, and so. It's a very it's mundane right speech. It involves a lot of effort. It involves a lot of of will and trying. One who has had some degree, maybe not perfect, but some degree of insight into the third noble truth, realizes to some extent the causes of suffering and the cessation of those causes. Then it's called a super mundane factor of the path, and then it describes the abstaining from those same four kinds of verbal misconduct, but with a mind that is noble, a mind that is taintless, one who possesses the path and is developing the noble path. So I'm only mentioning this in relationship to the speech, but actually if those of you that read the discourse will see that this same distinction is made for every path, every aspect of the path, that there's the way that we practice from the mundane perspective, and there's the way that we continue to practice even after there's been some degree of realization of the third noble truth. As a noble path factor, right speech must include the support of right intention, right view, right mindfulness, right concentration, the whole path. The nobility or the rightness is brought through its relationship to the other path factors, to the whole path. It's not just about being a skillful communicator. We can not lie, not engage in gossip, not have malicious speech and not have um, harsh speech just from skillful communications. And it would not be considered an aspect of the eightfold path if there wasn't an integration of the other path factors. And that, again, is true for all of these all of these aspects. So right action is the next one. Right action or the fulfillment of action implies a clarity of virtue regarding our actions. And specifically, it means maintaining the precepts of not killing, not stealing and not engaging in sexual abuse. And by implication, cultivating non-harming in our actions. And what, friends, is right action? 
abstaining from killing living beings, abstaining from killing what from taking what is not giving given, and abstaining from misconduct in sensual pleasures. This is called right action. Our action may be relatively pure by conventional standards, just by abstaining from these wrong actions. But to be considered the fulfillment of right action, it must be again infused with right view, right effort, right mindfulness, right intention, etc. The whole path then this action becomes a manifestation of the Eightfold Path. For right livelihood, the Buddha defines right livelihood like this. These five trades should not be taken up by a lay follower, trading in weapons, trading in human beings, trading in meat, trading in intoxicants, and trading in poison. Now, when we consider right livelihood, we usually consider it to ex- the, the issues to extend quite a bit beyond these uh, simply abstaining from these five very harmful trades. But I think right livelihood does not mean that we all have to enter the helping professions, nor does it mean that we have to serve selflessly like Mother Teresa. And it doesn't raise poverty up to a virtue. It instead invites us to look at our livelihood, to look at our work, and to consider, is it appropriate? Does it lead to harm, or does it lead to well-being in our lives and in the lives of others? Have we brought our work life into our spiritual life? Is there an integration of this part into our path? Or have we somehow separated, oh, that's okay because it's just business. And then our spiritual life somehow operates by other, other um, values. The understanding in the Eightfold Path is how we act and how we interact in all aspects of our lives are all a part of the path of realization, including our work life, including our business. So we operate with the same We bring the same uh, questions of what is our intention, what is our view, is our speech appropriate, is our action appropriate with our livelihood when we consider how can our livelihood, how is our livelihood functioning as a part of our path. We can't separate it out and say, oh, I'm living a spiritual life except for these eight hours a day. We also can consider just if there's any way that our livelihood prevents the development of the path. Or for some people, avoiding work prevents the um, development of the path. How does our work lead to the fulfillment of every step on the Eightfold Path? With right effort, samavayama, right effort can be summarized as either the effort of avoiding or overcoming unskillful qualities or the effort of developing and maintaining skillful qualities. I often speak about right effort. It's the thing that probably gives me the most joy and delight to talk about because it's one of the things that we develop when we want to be skillful meditators is how are we applying our effort? 
Are we adjusting the quality and the quantity of effort appropriately? Are we flexible in relationship to the effort so that we can be fully relaxed in a moment that needs that spacious ease, but give ourselves 125% when that is appropriate? Do we have the full range of effort that we can bring to our awakening? The noble The noble right effort relates directly to the effort to establish and each path, each aspect of the path, and to basically to travel the noble eightfold path. So right effort is repeatedly described in relationship to the right effort to establish right view, the right effort in establishing right thought, the right effort that's involved in establishing right speech. And you know it takes a lot of effort to really work with each of these aspects. We're not going to just be engage in right speech with no effort. You know, we'll need some effort to restrain, to refrain from wrong speech, and we'll need some effort to cultivate right speech. Right effort is defined as the effort to abandon the wrong path and to enter upon the right path. With right mindfulness, samasati, Mindfulness describes the quality of attention that's present, clear, and receptive. The mind literally sinks into its object when we're meditating. We're steady. We remember what we are attending to. And it includes a contemplation that includes the contemplation of the body, the contemplations of feelings, the contemplations of the mind, and the contemplations of, contemplations of all phenomena and mental states. It's important to understand that mindfulness is not always right mindfulness. All mindfulness does not lead to the end of suffering or the development of the path. And wrong mindfulness is not just attention that's based on cruelty. In fact, many of the ways that we are finding mindfulness taught in the West in contemporary times divorces mindfulness from the ethics, from liberation, and from the rest of the Eightfold Path. And it might present present mindfulness as simply an emotional skill, a kind of social skill, a personal or professional skill. It might present it as a therapeutic tool or a method for improving our performance at work or improving our memory or improving our test scores or improving ourselves in our performance in athletic competitions or music or music concerts or many, many, many aspects or applications we find mindfulness taught in these days. And it's certainly good to develop mindfulness and to apply it to every aspect of our lives. But having a sustained mindfulness of the present moment experience may create a calm attention. And it may even feel good and it may reduce a lot of the struggles and the sufferings that we have. It will probably increase our memory. It will probably reduce um, certain health problems, stress-related health problems. But this is not intrinsically liberating. You've probably all seen cats that can be very attentive and very steady and yet very relaxed and very precise in their attention. You know, when they see some little 
little movement in the grass and they can watch that little hole and there can be a kind of cat-like quality sometimes to our mindfulness but this isn't this isn't necessarily liberating right mindfulness as a right mindfulness the fulfillment of mindfulness is defined as the entering of each right factor on the path of awakening and the mindfulness engaged in abandoning the wrong path each wrong way of intending speaking acting livelihood etc so even though we find mindfulness entering into our mainstream cultures which is a a beautiful and wonderful thing i think as practitioners as serious practitioners we need to consider what the agenda is of that mindfulness because it may be used to further the agenda of schools or of corporations or of hospitals or of therapies and it may function to help bring greater harmony both internally and externally in relationship how do we relate to our emotions how do we relate to other people but without a recognition of mindfulness methods and techniques as elements of a liberating path i really wonder if they can bear lasting fruit if they can bring lasting fruit the common strategy today is to incorporate mindfulness in a lot of things i don't know how frequently you see it but i'm starting to see it everywhere it's like it's a buzzword put it in a book title it'll sell put it in an article title it'll sell put it in your business card and you'll be cool put it in um in a grant application and you'll get a grant it's like a it's almost like a a buzzword um and sometimes in order to get mindfulness into the mainstream some strategies have been to avoid any reference to buddhism for fear that association with the historic or a religious leader would somehow thwart the mainstreaming of these practices unfortunately what can happen is along with the main with along with the denial of buddhist roots we've also seen an avoiding or a downplaying of teachings on ethics on generosity on honesty on compassion on emptiness and on liberation which are the essence of this path as mindfulness merges into our culture and also as money can be made through it i think it's really important that we consider both the merits and the dangers of practicing mindfulness without the rest of the eightfold path are we watering down the teachings of liberation and this is something we have to keep asking ourselves as mindfulness enters the culture and as we work hard to get mindfulness more into the culture we have to keep asking the question can we bring it into the culture in a way that maintains its roots in ethics and its purpose of of liberation of freeing the mind from the causes of suffering so that we don't just present a tiny slice of the path and think that that slice alone has intrinsic meaning or intrinsic value perhaps the real value of mindfulness is 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 its relationship to the other aspects of the eightfold path with right concentration samasamadhi the buddha defined 
unification of mind equipped with these seven factors, which are the other seven factors of the path, is called noble right concentration with its supports and its requisites. So right concentration is defined here as the culmination of the entire path. It is a unification of mind that is supported by the development of every other factor. The concentration of a rifleman aiming at a target is not necessarily right concentration. The concentration of a downhill skier at the peak of performance is not necessarily right concentration. The concentration of an engineer working against a deadline is not necessarily right concentration. And the concentration of a violin maker who's carefully sculpting the wood for a fine instrument is not necessarily right concentration. We all cultivate concentration in our work, in our home, and in our daily life. We experience right view, right intentions, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, effort, and concentration. And I think in our practice, it's important that we keep checking to see that the path is full so that there can be a fulfillment of the path as well as that each aspect of the path is on the right side rather than the wrong side, on the, the Sama side rather than on the Nietzsche side. It's not enough to just not do, to abstain from unwholesome things. It's described in the texts as being like a baby who's lying prone. But we also are encouraged again and again to actively cultivate wholesome states. To be on the noble path, we must know unwholesome and wholesome states, their action, the actions associated with them, and the intentions. What are their origins? Where do they cease? And how do we practice for their cessation? It's a combination of all of these path factors and the integration of the whole path that brings us to the nobility and the fulfillment of this path of practice. The integration describes the eightfold path of one beyond training. When these path factors are fully integrated and come to fulfillment in the development of concentration, then we realize the full noble noble truths as a direct and intimate realization. It's not just a matter of abiding by them as a set of rules or a set of guidelines. It's an inner realization that we practice and we manifest. I want to just end with a quote from Lama Das. He said, The Eightfold Path taught by Buddha can be said to be an eight-step recovery program for samsaraholics. <laughs> to recover who and what we truly are and recover our basic sanity and authentic, purposeful life. Let's have a moment or two of silence together, please. Araham sama sambuto vijacharana sampano Sukato lokavitu anutaro purisadamma sarati satateva manutsanang budo bhagavati. 
Well, thank you very much for coming.